Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and on this week's podcast I'm incredibly excited to be speaking with design legend Tom Geismar. Before we get into the interview I do want to give a big shout out to the sponsor of this podcast FreshBooks. Now FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software that makes it really easy to create and send professional looking invoices in seconds. To try it out for yourself with a free unrestricted 30 day trial, all you need to do is visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. This week, I'm really excited to be interviewing Tom Geismar, one of the most highly acclaimed designers in the profession, having created iconic logos for Mobile Oil, Xerox, Chase Bank, and many more. He is the founding partner of design agency Chemayoff and Geismar and Haviv, and is widely considered a pioneer of American graphic design. Tom is a real legend in the design industry and has over 60 years of experience. So he's by far um, one of the most experienced people that I've interviewed on this podcast so far. So when I reached out to Tom to be on the podcast, I never actually expected a reply. Uh, so when I when I got a reply from his assistant, I was extremely excited and I feel very honoured to have had the opportunity to interview him as I have done. So here's Tom Geismar, where we start the the conversation talking about how he designed uh, logos at the start of his career, which was before computers existed. Well, we just had different tools. That's really the only difference. We started out doing sketching, uh, and we still do. Uh, you know, with a pen or a pencil and, and paper or tracing paper or whatever, because we find it much faster and uh, less restrictive than doing it on the computer in terms of coming up with ideas. Uh, but then uh, to, to do the artwork, I mean, you might even draw it. I mean, at that time, uh, you know, ordering type required that you'd write out You'd, you'd have the text that you wanted uh, typed out and you would specify size and letting and so on. And then you would send it out to a typesetter. And maybe the next day, if you were in a, a big city, you would get, or the next morning, they used to work what they called the lobster shift. They'd work overnight, uh, the typesetters, and you would get back a proof in the morning. And then if you had changes, you'd have to go through the process Again, so it was it was reasonably cumbersome, but it, it, it is what it was. But because of that, uh, I think we all learned how to what we called Greek type. In other words, you could really draw type uh, just with a, a pencil or pen, but you could indicate it pretty accurately. Uh, it was only to study, to look at things. And so we did the same thing, I think, with logos and so on. Uh, I have a lot of hand-drawn things, use, you know, color markers, pencils, what have you uh, to do it. Uh, but then you would have to make mock-ups of things if you wanted to show what a letterhead looked like or a sign or something. And, you you know, we used photostats and uh, color papers and, uh, and whatever we had at hand uh, 
to make something up. And, th- and that's been the big change with the computer and printers that we have today that it's much easier to do, uh, to, to show what something would look like in application. But the process isn't, isn't all that different. Mm-hmm. I feel very lucky to some degree that um, since starting out as, as a designer, um, that I've had access to tools that make the whole design process easier and, and faster. Um, because I've only ever had access to um, current design tools like um, Adobe Illustrator, I'm not familiar with the tools that was originally used. How, for example, would you be able to create like different size versions of, of, of the logo that you've actually worked on? Do you know what a photostat is? I mean, a photostat is, um, it, it's a very large camera, basically, where you would lie something on a plate and then you would get a paper image of that, either in positive or negative. So we actually had our own photostat machines in the office because we used it so often, but other people use services. And between a photostat and also uh, film, just like the printer used to use uh, this Kodak, what we used to call Kodalith film, which converts everything to black or white, to clear or, or solid, basically. So you would use those uh, those processes, and you'd use the photostat to greatly enlarge something. If you had a, whatever it is, a design or whatever, you could enlarge it, you know, I don't know whether it was 400% at a time or whatever, using a photostat machine, or you could take the, 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 the enlargement and enlarge it again or whatever. Uh, that way and that was you know that was reasonably easy to do that makes sense it's it's certainly much easier now now um personally i found that um presenting logo designs to clients is one of the most important parts of the design process so what advice can you give to listeners uh, for presenting their work to clients well we we have always felt that the only way to judge a design of a new logo is to see what it would look like in application uh, and appropriate applications, you know, that, that relate obviously to the client's business or whatever they, whatever they do, whoever they are. So we spend a lot of time doing that, making mock-ups. And that's what I meant with the computer and Photoshop and whatever, it's much easier to show what it would look like as a sign, let's say, or, you know, on a T-shirt or what have you, whatever applications might be appropriate. Uh, and that's how we always show the logo. We never just show, you know, a design on a piece of white paper. We're always showing it in, in application because we feel it's the only way to really explain, you know, what it is. Uh, and whether it works, which to us is key, whether it works effectively in the actual applications that people will see. So do you still present the logo in isolation on a white background, or are you only ever presenting the designs in, in situ, as you've mentioned? No, no, we, we, we do show it in one form or another at first, and then show what it looks like on different color backgrounds, what it looks like in, in different applications, what it looks like at a very small size, uh, what it might look like at a very large size, and so on, just to prove that it can work uh, in the range of applications that are appropriate for, for, that, for that client. So all I'm saying is, 
for example, we, we will never show anything that we don't believe uh, will work and would be uh, desirable. So what we won't do is, for example, we understand that in Korea, uh, what the client demands at first is to see a hundred sketches up, you know, pinned up to a wall, and they will select from those the most prompt. We, we would never do that because it, it doesn't make any sense to us. It would only make sense to work it out. And sometimes, you know, we have what we think is a good idea, and then we start to work out what it looks like in application and realize it ain't such a great idea. And uh, and we eliminate it. So to us, that's a very important part of it. That's that's interesting. So uh, another thing in relation to that, I I know that color can really influence a client's choice. Uh, so some people that I've spoken to have, have designed and presented their logos in black and white um, at first. So based on on what I've seen of your work, am I right in understanding that you're making all design decisions, including color choices, before ever presenting anything to the client? That's that is true, uh, but we always start out in black and white uh, because uh, the color we don't show it to the client that way, but for ourselves, it's very it's very important that it can work simply in black and white because uh, the color is, is somehow more arbitrary in terms of applying color. Depends on what the situation is. But basically, we start out in, in black and white and really thinking of it as a silhouette. And we're currently, uh, someone's going to be publishing uh, later this spring a book about our work, and we purposely, for the cover, have all black and white uh, versions of a bunch of the marks that we've done. Oh, I'm going to keep an eye out for that book for sure. Now, in in relation to black and white logos, like at the start of your career, technology really uh, limited what could be done with a logo. But now we have tools that can create pretty much anything we imagine. And we've got printing processes too that are pretty much caught up with that. There are also some brands that are entirely digital too. Um... So there are no like limitations for what can actually be done in these instances. Now, based on that, do you still feel that designing for black and white is essential? Well, it isn't so much that it needs to work that way. I mean, it may never be seen that way, but uh, it's it's a way of getting down to the real, the basic element of it, and and not be deceive ourselves in terms of color or something, or, or the color doesn't work. So. It's, it's only a starting point. Uh, it doesn't mean that you'll actually ever see it that way, though, you know, sometimes, sometimes you do. But uh, it's, it's just a way, a way of working, let's say. It, it, it's a progression. Uh, uh, it's a process that, uh, that we believe in, at least in the work that works for us. That, that's a good way to think about it. I know I, I personally design logos to ensure they can work in, in single color, even in instances where I know it might ever only be used on, like, say, an iPhone app. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, the thing that's happened, which is interesting, is we always believed in, in trying to keep things very simple, very clear. Uh, and today, there's so many needs for something very small that you know can be read whether it's an app or in social media or you know as a 
on your browser or whatever, so that uh, it's really it's really important uh, to so many people, and, and whether they do any print or not. That, but even more so if it's all uh, digital, that that it be able to work at a very small size, that it be legible. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. We we really need to focus on designing in single color, um, primarily because of the need for logos to be very versatile, to be very versatile, and to work at small sizes. Yeah. Now I understand that you've worked on over a hundred corporate identities in your career. Have there been any mistakes that you've made that you could share with us to make sure that we don't do the same? Of course, there've been. <laughs> I was going to say, no, never made a mistake. Um, I, but I, I, you know, we often go up a, a dead end road or whatever. I mean, you, you can spend a lot of time working these things out, obviously. Um, one kind of mistake is, is, that, that we have made is showing too many things, too many options, uh, and, and showing some options that, you know, we didn't really feel good about and uh, I don't know I have a triumph always said you know if you show them something bad that's what they're going to take um, and and we've made that mistake not that it was bad but it wasn't it wasn't as good as it as it could have been or should have been uh, so that's certainly uh, one kind of thing the, the, the other another one I, I think is um, sort of misreading what the issues are, what the challenge is, and, and going off in a, in a direction that we sort of fall in love with, but uh, doesn't really, is not really the best direction to go in for this, that particular uh, uh, client. Mm-hmm. So, how how have you been able to avoid that situation? Like, when, once you've faced it, because I mean, obviously, if you've taken it completely in the wrong direction, that the client isn't going to be happy with it. Have, have you come up with any uh, methods for preventing that from happening? I don't know if there's any way of preventing it, but what we do is we really try to understand what the issues are, what and and before doing any design, we do a lot of interviews and audits and uh, really looking around and studying the competition and studying, uh, you know, who these people are and what they do and what their culture is and so on. So that we really feel, even we may not even really understand, especially today, some of what they're doing, but we sort of know who they are and what they believe in and, you know, what the field is. And uh, that's a really important Part of it, because sometimes, you know, you just start a project and there's a name that's intriguing or something and you go ahead and, and do something very quickly. But often that, that, that's not the thing that's most, most appropriate. So we try to avoid that really by really getting a, a, as well as possible an understanding of what the issues are and helping to define, you know, what we say is the problem or the issues because they're not necessarily what the client thinks it is. Um, in other words, a lot of it comes from observation, and, and because of that, we try, we you know have a pretty small office, and the principals are all designers, and we ourselves do the interviews, 
and do the audit and really try to get immersed in in each each project uh, just for that reason to really you know get as well as possible get an understanding of uh, who they are and what they need fantastic advice now my next question is a, a pricing one at the moment, the bulk of my design uh, projects have been relatively small. So, for example, the the biggest kind of project that I've taken on might just be like a, lo- a logo, um, a label, some packaging, a website and some stationery. So they've, they've all been relatively small. But you've worked on some incredibly large free brands such as, you know, the uh, the identity uh, design for mobile, the the oil company. Now, in instances like that, how do you go about sufficiently scoping um, such project to, to make sure that you know exactly what, what works involved and, and that you're not underselling yourself as a designer or agency? Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, it's basically from experience with you know previous jobs and what it actually took. I mean, I think we think that we're basically charging for our time and you know how much time did the the other ones take that were in any way similar in terms of scale and scope and so on um it's always it's always difficult you know and who they are and what the situation is it's 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 always tricky to come up with pricing that's appropriate and uh works for you and works for, works for them uh, mobile is really a very different situation. We, we were brought into that uh, to come up with, uh, along with the architect, Elliot Noyes, to come up with a whole idea for their service stations that were would be a radical change. And when we presented it as a joint presentation and it was eventually agreed to, we then uh, actually became the, officially their. We became their graphic design consultants. The noise office became their architectural consultants, and for over thirty years, continued to do work uh, where we had a consultancy fee, and we also charged for the time we spent on specific any specific projects, which were hundreds and hundreds of different projects. So that was a you know a, a very nice relationship actually for them and for us. But that's unusual. Mm-hmm. That's a really useful answer. Like, I, I like the idea of seeing it as um, a mix of consultancy and specific uh, deliverables. Um, just makes it so much easier to understand and, and to imagine how much I might price such a, a project. So thanks for that. Now, moving on to my next question. Once you've completed an identity project, how do you go about launching that rebrand to the general public? Well, that's become a very uh, tricky subject. Um, and sometimes we're involved and sometimes we're not involved at all in that. Um, today, it's especially tricky because uh, everyone's watching and everyone has an opinion. And, uh, you know, there have been all kinds of cases where you get this enormous backlash on uh, Facebook or some other social media thing. Um, and, and, and we're trying to tell clients they need to take a long-term view 
that if identity is going to work for them, it's got to work for a long time. Otherwise, you know, it takes a while to establish. And, you know, the longer you have it, I mean, actually, the better in terms of recognition. So on the one hand, we're trying to look at it in a long-term term view, and yet you have so many people who seem to be out there just looking for something to uh, uh, snipe about. And uh, so then uh, the clients get uh, gun-shy, in a sense, about um, making any issue of the new thing. So sometimes we, t- we tell we recommend they just just start to use it, you know, where it's appropriate and uh, just let it be there without making any kind of fuss about it. But other times, uh, it depends on who the audience is. Sometimes the audience is their own people. I mean, the major audience. And they'll, they'll, they have varying ways of, uh, of doing that. And, uh, Uh, it's especially difficult we found with schools, with universities and so on, uh, because you have such an ingrained uh, group of people who care, whether it's the faculty or the alumni or the students. Uh, And and they they care and and they're very vocal and they're always reluctant to give up what they've had uh, during their uh, stay at the school. So it's especially a problem uh, trying to update something uh, for uh, an institution like that. Uh, but we had one uh, university who did a terrific job by promoting it at a, at a major sporting event and shooting out thousands of T-shirts to all the students and other kinds of things, uh, doing a video immediately after so that it appeared the next day on, the, on everyone's website and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky thing. We don't necessarily always get involved in those things, but we're, we are usually consulted on it. I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have been kind enough to sponsor this podcast and allow me to make it possible. FreshBooks makes it really easy to create and send invoices to your clients to make sure you get paid. There's no formatting and you can add your own logo and color scheme too to make sure that your invoices reflect your brand. Another cool feature is that you can actually see when your clients have seen your invoices too, so there's no more guessing. I'll also send automated late payment reminders too, saving you from any of those awkward conversations that no one ever wants to have. It was also recently redesigned from the ground up too, so now it looks absolutely beautiful. It's really easy to use too. So for me as a designer, that's something that matters and I'm sure it will to you too. If you're listening now and you've not yet tried FreshBooks for yourself, now is the time to do it because FreshBooks is offering you a free unrestricted 30-day trial, no credit card required. All you need to do is visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to that interview. Now I know throughout your career you've worked uh, in a 
fairly small team. Um, but with the scale of, of projects that you've worked on and, and the high profile that you've built up as, as a designer, what's the reason why you kept the, the company fairly small? Well, partly because we wouldn't know how to run a larger one, but um, actually we haven't always been so small, but the reason for that is that we were involved in many other aspects of design. Um, we have been the curators and the designers for many major exhibitions, uh, both historical and otherwise. Um, we've worked with many architects on developing artwork for various architectural projects and so on. And those things require a lot of different skills. So our office has at varying times been up to 35 or 40 people, but not concentrating on, you know, graphic identities. And we decided, I don't know, at this point, over 10 years ago, 12 years ago, to to really cut down the size of the office and to really concentrate uh, on doing graphic identities because it's something we could do. We, we, we didn't like trying to run a larger office uh, and we, we, we couldn't have the same control that we could have with a smaller office also. So for us personally, it's been more satisfying to have a smaller office where we can have a much more of a hands-on uh, in terms of, of of the design aspect of it. Yeah, that, that's interesting you say that. So like when when you did start to actually scale the business, was you working less on the type of work that you wanted to do and focusing more on like physical management of people? Well, to, to some extent that's true, but but also the nature of those other kinds of projects is quite different. Uh, and they're very long-term the, the exhibition projects, and they were always very major projects, whether it was the government pavilion at a major world's fair or a presidential library or uh, other kinds of things that would go on for years and required other kinds of skills, writers, curators, um, and uh, others, uh, you know, and architects and uh, detailers and so on. So, uh, they're, 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 they're complex in terms of time and in, in terms of the skills involved. So part of it was management, but part of it was also uh, so many parts that, that we couldn't personally do. And I, I think it just happens that for us, having the personal hands-on um, activity is what we really like so <laughs> why not do it well yeah that that makes total sense i i know i'm i'm personally at the point where i could start to um build a small team of my own but i'm, I'm quite happy working on my own um and and just having total control of uh, the clients i work with and and my my process and, and everything like i i physically prefer working on my own and and I don't really like the idea of having to start managing other people and worrying about bringing in um, extra money. Now when when you are a small team in in your situation, I, I'd imagine that sometimes the workload can get in, incredibly high. Do do you ever need to outsource any of the work? No, we tr well 
we we do outsource certain aspects that we can't do well ourselves. So we're we are you know reasonably often working with writers or strategists or or some other people. But for the design work, we very much keep that uh, in house and try to you know stagger the work so that it, it becomes you know a relatively even flow as much as you can can control it. We'd rather turn down something if it's going to really make it impossible to do what the work already in hand or ask them to delay it. And, uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But try to spread it out. But, you know, one other thing, just to go back to the, the very beginning here, when whatever we were doing, going back to the you know, ancient days, um, we always had people who just did what we call production. So they would do mechanicals. They would, they would prepare the artwork for the printer, whoever it is. And that was a whole different uh, skill set and personality, people who liked to do that. So the designer, you know, there was, a, there, there was a distinction between being a designer and being a production artist, let's say. And some people like that. They, they didn't want design responsibility, but they wanted, they liked to work with their hands and, and do things, you know, mechanically and make sure everything's lined up and pasted down properly and so on. Uh, the computer, again, changed that. Suddenly designers became their own production artists, if you will, uh, because of the computer. But that also meant fewer people needed uh, in the process. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Again, this makes me really thankful to uh, for all of the modern tools that, that I have access to. Now, with a small agency like yours and the, the incredible reputation that, that you've built up, I'd imagine that you're inundated with um, p- potential design projects. Do you have any kind of process to help you choose which projects you do actually take on? Well... Sure. I mean, it, it needs to seem something appropriate for us. It, 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 it needs to be something that would be interesting. Uh, I'm trying to think. We, we used to have three criteria. Um, and this goes back to sort of the beginning of, of what, when you take a job, which I think sort of answers your question. Um, one is, would it be fun to do? Is it something you'd really, you know, really like to work on? Sounds challenging, interesting, what have you. Um, another is, maybe it's not so interesting, but it could lead to other things that we do want to do. It's a foot in the door or whatever, you, however you want to put it. So that's a, another criteria. And the third was, you know, is it profitable? You know, can we make some money on it? Uh, will it help us sustain the office? So ideally, we said you you should have two of those, two of the three. I mean, ideally, you'd have all three. But uh, if you can have two of the three, so, you know, it, it could be really interesting and it could lead to something. It may be very unprofitable, but that would be a reason to do it. You know, or maybe it's not so interesting, uh, but it could lead to something and it would be profitable. So, yes, we'll do it. I mean, you know, take this all with a grain of salt, but it's not a bad 
way of, of thinking about it in terms of deciding, you know, which projects you want to work on. Mm-hmm. It's really good advice. Now, as, as a designer, I'm quite a heavy reader and uh, I have a, a pretty decent collection of both inspirational and, and informative design books. And I found a lot of uh, other designers to um, be similar in, in this sense. So I'd really love to know um, from you if there's been any uh, books that you've read that have been particularly important to your success. No, I... Um... I don't think I could name one. I, there was a book that introduced me to the whole idea of graphic design, which is a very old book going back, I think, to the originally published in the 1930s and called graphic design before there was that term out there as, as a field. Um, but otherwise, no, I mean, I tend not to read design books, read uh, other things. Oh, okay. So what, what is it that you're doing to keep um, learning and, and be inspired? Because for me, that, that's always come from books. Well, I mean, I think we're all different in that, you know, everyone does uh, maybe in a different way. But I, we have always been and I have always been interested in a lot of different things. So last, last weekend, for example, I went to a number of art galleries and the Metropolitan Museum of Art to see a bunch of current shows, and I've always been interested in the in the art world. Um, we, we go to plays and other cultural events. Um, you know, you do read in, in various areas. You, you you try to keep up with the news. Um, you see what's happening in advertising and other related fields. I, I think it's a matter of being curious and, you know, whatever form that takes. Um, so very aware of the world. And one of the things that I found very, very interesting and continue, continues to be satisfying, and I don't know, some people might, you know, feel differently, but we get to meet all kinds of people basically as our clients who are in, especially today, are in so many different fields, many of which I don't even understand. But it's interesting because as we you know, try to understand them and what the issues are, we get a, an indoctrination into some obscure field that you never knew existed or some aspect of something. So we've been involved with you know, things to, to do with the world of medicine, things to do with the world of healthcare, uh, technology, uh, some of the you know completely online uh, kinds of ways of raising funds, uh, various kinds of nonprofit organizations, and so on. And you know we sort of get this free education, and, and I think that's true with many designers that if you have a range of clients that you work for. Um, you you get a kind of education in that sense that uh, most people don't don't have when you think about it. Yeah, that's very true. I, I know with each new project I take on, I pretty much always learn something new. Now, in a previous episode, I I interviewed uh, Melinda Livesey, and uh, we discussed the use of the the golden ratio in logo design. 
Now, I, I currently don't use this in my work, but um, following uh, Melinda's studies, I've been fascinated to see that some design giants such as um, Paul Rand use it quite heavily in their actual logo design work. Is this something that you've ever used yourself? Uh, you know, it's funny you ask that. Uh, I mean, the, the last part of your question, no, not really, but just yesterday... Um, we're, what I was just saying before about all these kind of somewhat sometimes bizarre um, uh, organizations that we get involved in, we're involved with the one that has to do with analysis of cryptocurrency. And, uh, and it's a technical analysis and it's has a name. It's a very particular kinds of technical analysis. And I was trying to understand what it is and was, you know, just looking on the web and uh, came across this site that tried to describe it. And it all came down to the golden mean somehow. I still don't understand how they got from point A to point B. But uh, in the end, uh, this thing had had to do with it. But in, in terms of our own work, no, I mean, we don't, I mean, I, maybe subconsciously, you know, I certainly know what it is, but uh, don't, don't apply it directly. It's interesting you say that because there's been a lot of debates, like some people say it's not needed, some people are using it, um, and, and some people are even implying that it's a myth. Um, but I've, I found it fascinating to see it in uh, Paul Rand's work. So I've always been curious if, if you'd ever used it yourself. This season of the podcast, I've asked this same question and I, I'd really love to hear your take on it. So if you could give just one logo design tip, what would that be? Keep it simple. I love that your response is simple too. Nothing more needed. Now you're you're actually the the tenth person I've interviewed this season, and and surprisingly, almost everyone has said exactly the same thing to keep it simple. Now we're we're near the end of our time for the interview, and um, you shared a lot of knowledge from your career. Um, but I'm I'm aware that. Uh, for most of the uh, last 60 years, you've actually worked very closely with Ivan, who very sadly passed away in, in December last year. Now, as a, as a designer, his work's been really important to me. And um, having been so close, I, I know that he was, uh, you know, a, a really important of your life. Would you feel comfortable to share a few memories as, as a tribute to him? I mean, Ivan and I, you know, were partners for 60 years, a little over 60 years. We had been in school together for one year. And after school, I was drafted into the Army, and Ivan came to New York as a free, to do freelance work. He got tired of it after a couple of years, and, and as I was about to get out of the Army, uh, he asked if I wanted to help you know, start a firm. And it was really as simple as that. Um, we just we just did it um, in in one room that we that we rented. Uh, Ivan, you know, he certainly his background is in in well, not just not just London, but the UK. 
Uh, and he always felt strongly about that, you know. And um, he was just a really a very creative person who was very much his own person. Uh, and uh, he, he, you know, came from his, his father, uh, certainly well-known both in London and then in the U.S. more as a, uh, as a teacher rather than as an architect. Uh, and was the teacher of many uh, famous architects, including Norman Foster and others. Um, uh, who've gone on to you know prominence both here and uh, and in in uh, in the UK and uh, Ivan he and I were really quite different in terms of personality and um, I, I would you know was really interested in in understanding the whole issue involved to and then would come up with many different designs or many different approaches and would go through a lot of iterations. Ivan was much more, I've got an idea, that's it. Do it very quickly. And and sometimes it was, you know, right on. And other times it was, where'd that come from? <laughs> and then uh, that was sort of great, you know, and we sort of bounced things back and forth. And then Ivan also, of course, uh, did a lot of personal work, especially his collages and his illustrations and uh, uh he got great pleasure out of that and was doing all that right up, right up to the end. And, uh, he, he really had a terrific eye and uh, a visual sense that was extremely acute. So it was a, you know, we had a good, a good run, as they say, and I'll certainly miss him greatly. You guys really did like your, your catalog of, of work is incredible. And, uh, I do believe that Ivan's work will live on and uh, he will be forever um, re remembered. So thank you so much for um, a beautiful tribute. Thomas, it's been a real honor to have had the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I never I never imagined when I, I first reached out that this would actually become a, a, a reality. So I, I'm incredibly uh, grateful for your time. Thank you for sharing so much with us and for being an incredible inspiration to me and uh, other designers around the world. So, Tom, thank you again for being an amazing guest today. This was such an incredible interview and a real honour for me. I still can't believe it. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for your time. If you're listening, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for your time. Now, if you want to learn more about Tom, do make sure to check out his website, tomgeismar.com, where you can see examples of his iconic logo design work and you can find links to um, other websites of his. Show notes for this episode can be found at logogeek.uk forward slash 2.10. Now this episode wraps up season two of this podcast, but don't worry, it will return in a few months time with more incredible guests and topics to be covered too. 
Now, if you have any questions, guests, or topics that you really want to be discussed in the next season, you can you can send me a message on Twitter at logo underscore geek, or even better, you you can find me in the Logo Geek community on Facebook, which is totally free. And um, you can chat with myself and over 3,500 other logo designers from around the world. And uh, to find out, all you need to do is visit logogeek.uk forward slash community. Now, this has been an incredible second season. And uh, after doing 20 episodes, I finally feel like I'm starting to get grips with uh, the, the kit I have, the software, and, and actually interviewing people too so I, I hope you know if you do binge listen and, and you kind of go from season one to the end of season two you can actually hear a difference in uh, my confidence and and also my uh, approach and, and the quality of the sound too um, so for me that's really exciting uh, that I've actually got more comfortable so I can't wait to actually start uh, working on a third season which I hope will be even better than anything I've done before. Now, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do make sure to write a review on iTunes. That would be greatly appreciated and it helps me reach more people too, um, which also makes sure that I can get uh, sponsorship for the next season so I can keep doing these things. So thanks so much for listening. Um, I hope you've really enjoyed these as much as I have. And uh, I will see you next time or I'll see you shortly in the community.